0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A bit later, we'll be talking about the unconscious reasons we do what we do. But first, people in many parts of Northern California are returning to their homes after being forced to flee devastating wildfires. But now they're faced with another crisis, smoke debris and ash, entire houses, entire neighborhoods burnt down, everything from furniture to plastics to paint cans and pesticides stored in garages. All that stuff is in the remaining ash. And the smoke created by these wildfires can be felt not just in immediate areas, but hundreds of miles away too. People an hour south in San Francisco have been wearing breathing masks. So what are the potential health and safety hazards after a wildfire? Joining us to talk about this are my guests, Jeffrey Plumley, associate director for environmental health at the U.S. Geological Survey in Reston, Virginia; Lisa Miller, professor in anatomy, physiology, and cell biology at the University of California, Davis. Welcome both to Science Friday.
1: Thank, Thank you, you very much on. for having us.
0: And, and I want to mention to my listeners that if you've been affected by the wildfires in California, uh, even if you're not in California, we want to hear from you. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844 Of course, you can tweet us at SciFry. Uh, Dr. Plumley. there there were entire neighborhoods, as I say, that that were burned down in these wildfires. I know you study the composition of ash left behind after the california fires in 2007 what what did you find was in the debris
2: well we looked at both wildland areas where a lot of vegetation had burned and a, and a number of residences where the houses had been completely burned and and we found quite a lot of variability but uh, depending on the age of the house how hot it burned and and the type of construction but Uh, We found a variety of things like arsenic, uh, hexavalent chromium, uh, lead. Um, There may be some asbestos. And then we also found a variety of other metals and some things like uh, sodium hydroxide, calcium hydroxide, and other hydroxide minerals that are uh, left behind when vegetation or wood combusts completely.
0: So, so if you if you're returning to your home, which is which is a heap of ashes, now you may be mucking around in all the stuff your house used to be made at,
2: right? Or the or the combustion products thereof. And so, uh, the key thing is that uh, the uh, state of California, Cal EPA, has very good guidelines through fact sheets that you can get on the web about how you can minimize potential exposures to those materials and and what you can do. So, for example. Uh, do things to prevent generation of dust. The, the white ash that's left behind that has a lot of these alkali hydroxides uh, can be very fluffy and easily uh, disturbed and picked up and breathed in, so uh, you want to wear a, a high quality N95 dust mask and wear long sleeves, long pants, gloves, and eye protection help minimize any possible exposures to whatever is in the ash that might be there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Miller, any other health risks from these toxic chemicals that we should know about?
1: Well, certainly um, folks who have pre-existing conditions such as asthma and COPD um, would be far more vulnerable to the, the toxic effects, the inflammatory effects of all of these toxins um, if, if they breathe it in. So, yes, um, you know, certainly having um, a mass uh, during during this cleanup process is really critical for those individuals
0: mm-hmm. um, let's let's talk about smoke a little bit uh, what can happen when people are exposed to
1: this smoke after
0: wildfires
1: dr. Miller Um Great question. So, on a short-term basis, um, there are actually a, a fair number of studies, observational studies, um, which have reported increased emergency room visits and hospitalization, and again, those individuals who have pre-existing conditions, mostly individuals who have pre-existing respiratory conditions, um, and this is immediately following the um, the exposures, the the, the uh, with wildfire smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, what we don't know a lot about, surprisingly are the long-term effects of these exposures. Um, The population that is most well-studied, not surprisingly, are firefighters. Um, But even with that group of individuals, um, the long-term effects have been difficult to um, document, mostly because it's just flat-out difficult to follow up on on some of these individuals. So we don't know a lot. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to
0: the phones. Mitch in uh, Kutati, California. Hi, welcome to Science Friday
2: hi thank you for having me so uh my house is just slightly uh west of the presley fire of course south of santa rosa and all last week it was really evident that there was there was issues in the air besides just you know ash of wood etc you know metallic taste in the mouth uh the ears, and generally just feeling fatigued you know it was very much a, a big deal for us
0: mm-hmm. okay thank thanks uh for, for the call uh uh, Common symptoms, Lisa?
1: Um, again, um, his symptoms are very consistent with the types of symptoms that have been reported for previous wildfire um, events um, throughout California, California and throughout the nation. Mm-hmm. So that no surprise there. Um, what he's what he's experiencing, and I'm certainly I'm not a physician, so I, I have I I should emphasize that. But he's he's certainly experiencing the um, inflammatory effects of these toxins.
0: Yeah, lots of people want to uh, check in on us. Let's go to uh, Sarah in Sonoma County. Hi, welcome to Science Friday.
1: Hi, thanks. Go it's ahead. Take my call. Um, I had a question. A few friends and I, you know, we live, um, in Sebastopol, so only about 10 miles away. You know, I could see the fire from my, um, front door. And since then, we've had lots of asphalt, of course, as everyone knows. And, um, we, a lot of us still have vegetable gardens, um, and are wondering what we need to do with that. Do we need to get rid of all of, you know, the tomatoes, zucchini? And then also, what can we do, um, to, amend the soil or what can we do to make sure it's safe for future harvest
0: mm. Jeff plumley
2: well that's a that's a very good question I'm not sure I quite have enough expertise to answer it in detail but uh, clearly one of the things that we've seen is that that airborne ash that's deposited downwind from active fires at the urban uh, that have burned a lot of houses in the urban areas and have elevated levels of some metals or things but the question would be would that be enough to have any any problems in the vegetation, and that's something I would, I, I guess, I would advise folks if, to uh, consult their yeah. county agricultural agents to see the uh, ash. A lot of the properties of natural ash from vegetation actually are 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 nutrients. So calcium, sodium, uh, magnesium, phosphate are, are nutrients. The main question would be: Are there high enough levels of any of the metals to cause a mm-hmm. concern? And and I, I think that would be a, a question that, that would be pretty hard to answer with any any degree of certainty.
0: You know, while, while the wildfires were burning out of control, people were praying for rain, and has and has and has been raining in Northern California since yesterday. Uh, Dr. Miller, will that help get rid of the smoke? Is that a good thing?
1: Um, you know, I I the chemistry of the. Um, the particular matter is really not my area of expertise, but certainly just simply reducing levels of PM2.5 in the atmosphere would, would certainly help uh, mm-hmm. in terms of reducing health effects. Jeffrey?
2: Well, one thing I would say that we've noted in the past is that when rainfall events happen, particularly in areas where there are a lot of burned houses, uh, the, the runoff might have quite a bit of... of uh, things like uh, arsenic or, or other metals or debris that could be transported into local streams and might have a, a potential impact on water quality. So that's something that would need to be looked at uh, fairly carefully to understand are there impacts or not hmm. and how much runoff is coming from the burned houses. Typically we've seen in, in areas where um, burned houses have happened, there's quite a bit more in the way of, of potential um, heavy metals of concern than in vegetation, um, but uh, it, that's one of the things that actually hasn't really been studied that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly our heart, hearts go out to everybody in, in California and elsewhere who've been affected by the fires. Uh, but this clearly illustrates some of the things that, that really need to be continued to be looked at.
0: Well, speak, speaking of that, looking into the future, w- things that you'd like to look into further as wildfires become more intense each year, what are the gaps in our knowledge?
2: Well, so I would basically say understanding more uh, what's in a house or, or a building, what goes up in, in the ash plume and is deposited downwind, and local and populations downwind might be exposed to, versus what stays behind uh, as a function of, again, more work on the age of the house, the type of construction, how old. Older houses have legacy things like um, asbestos and lead and, and some pesticides. Understanding that, particularly unfortunately, as more houses burn or buildings burn, and then understanding what the uh, and what the sort of longer term impacts from exposures to smoke downwind, based on what's known about what's in the smoke, and then uh, particularly the wildland firefighters who are getting exposed more to materials that are burning in houses at the wildland urban interface, so it would be pretty important as well.
0: And Dr. Miller, any final comment on that?
1: Um, I would certainly agree with um, his comments. Um, I, I think one of the major gaps that um, we have in terms of understanding um, human exposures and the potential link to chronic and long-term health outcomes is the lack of reliable um, what we call biomarkers. Um, that can actually um, provide us information as to the amount of exposure and the type of exposure an individual has. Um, uh, we can, we're really good at um, using mathematical modeling um, strategies to come up with estimates of exposure, but actually determining the amount of exposure and the type of exposure on an individual basis is really, really challenging. So th- I think that's a major gap that we need to address in science.
0: Well, we've run out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank both of you. Jeffrey Plumley, Associate Director for Environmental Health at the U.S. Geological Survey based in uh, Reston, Virginia. Lisa Miller, Professor in Anatomy, Physiology, and Cell Biology at uh, UC Davis. Thank you both. For well, thank you, you for much. having us. You're welcome. After the break, we're going to look at how the unconscious part of our brain controls our thoughts and feelings and why you might want to greet your coworkers every morning especially your boss, with a warm cup of coffee in your hand. We'll talk about that mystery after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Ever had a gut feeling about a person you just met? What about a burst of inspiration for solving a tricky puzzle? You might have chalked the experience up to what you consider your above-average street smarts or your creative genius. But according to my next guest... It was actually the work of unconscious thinking, the hidden mental processes influencing our everyday behaviors. John Barge, professor of psychology at Yale and the director of the Automacity Clinic, uh, Cognition Lab at Yale. He's also the author of Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. Dr. Barge, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. It's a pleasure to be here. You're, you're quite welcome. What, what do you mean by unconscious reasons? Though?
3: Well, I'm, I'm using the term the way that Darwin used it and Freud used it. It's sort of the uh, historical use of the term, and it's the influences on us that we don't intend to happen and that we are not aware of operating. So since we're not aware of them, we uh, usually figure out the reasons for how we're feeling about somebody or our opinions and so forth in terms of what we are aware of. And uh, we think that we're angry right now because of what's right in front of us when it could have been something that just recently happened to us. Or, uh, for example, my, uh, I have a, a pug dog named Edgar, and the other day I, was, I had to take some uh, 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 anti-poison kind of uh, poison sumac uh, steroids, uh, prednisone, and uh, that has a side effect of making you a little more angry than usual. And Edgar was knocking me around, and I was a little irritated, and I was angry at Edgar. My wife said, you know, you're you're looking sort of angry right now. And it called my attention to the fact that I was angrier than usual, and I realized what was going on. But usually we feel, even then I, I fought it. I thought, no, 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 that was a bad dog. He was really being bad right then, and he deserved me to be uh, you know, angry at him. And it's a very hard thing to shake uh, that even though there are these other influences on us, we're pretty sure we know what's going on in terms of what we are aware of, and that's the disconnect.
0: Hmm. So let's say I need to hire a new employee. I'm going to look at that person's resume and interview and make a judgment based on that. Uh, But you're saying there uh, could be other things, maybe how I got along with my dog this morning, that could be influencing my decision unconsciously.
3: Absolutely. For one thing, there are uh, large studies, for example, in Italy of actual job uh, postings and a thousand people who applied, and they deliberately sent the same application in, um, exactly the same qualifications and so forth. And the only thing they varied was the photograph that was attached to the application. And some of the uh, resumes had attractive photographs, and some unattractive. But everything else was the same, and it was shocking what they found because 54 percent of the attractive women were were called in for job interviews, and only seven percent of the Unattractive women, even though the job resume was identical in both cases, for men it was a little not as bad. It was 43 to 27 percent, something like that. But it was uh, pretty overwhelming that there's a beauty premium out there, and and the research in neuroscience has shown that you know looking at attractive uh, people, just photographs, just looking at them does activate the reward center of your of your brain. So what's going on here is that these other factors are influencing how you feel. Uh-huh. But then you attribute how you feel to plausible you know, things that should affect you, such as their letters of recommendation or their job experience or something that, that is supposed to inf- affect you.
0: Is there a scientific definition for what attractive means?
3: Uh, that's a great question. Usually the research has shown that more symmetrical faces are found more attractive. For example, the studies that have used these morphing techniques on computers to average a bunch of faces together to see what the average uh, looks like, the more uh, faces they put into that uh, morph, the, uh, the more uh, it's an average face, and those are actually judged by people Uh, who think they're real faces, they're judges more attractive than the ones that are based on fewer people. And they've looked at uh, Miss Universe and these beauty pageants and the faces of the uh, contestants from the different continents and found that if they average those faces together, that face is judged even more beautifully as as being even more beautiful than any of the individual faces.
0: 844 724 is our number. 844 Sci talk You can also tweet us at Fry. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the program uh, that uh, I was going to talk about the coffee cup in the room. <laughs> you ran an experiment where you had people hold a cup of coffee without knowing it and describe for us what you were looking for there?
3: Well, it, it, it's a long. It's been around for a while. But we know when we talk about somebody being a warm person, we we know that, that that's saying a lot. That's saying a very good thing. And saying somebody's a cold person is not a very good thing. And usually, a warm person is somebody who has your interests at heart. You can trust them. They're generous. Uh, they're pro-social. They're a nice person. Cold person you now doesn't care about you. They care only about themselves. And and they often will betray you for their own gain. And this has been uh, known for a while, and we realized after, after 50 or 60 years of the importance of this warm, cold dimensions in, in, in uh, impressions people form of others that, you know, maybe it's something literally true about warmth. There were some people working, John Bowlby, who's a, a longtime uh, attachment theorist with cho- uh, infant to parent attachment and wrote about this in the 60s and 70s, actually noticed that he thought that physical warmth is actually conflated in an infant's mind, with with uh, social warmth, in the in in that the the mother is holding the infant close to her during breastfeeding, and that's also associated that warmth then is felt and associated with the infant, uh, with the social warmth of the mother being the one who's taking care, who has uh, who's watching out, is keeping the infant safe from predators, is feeding, doing all of those you know having your interests at heart kind of caretaking, and over time, Bowlby argued that this actually. Would become hardwired in uh, the human brain, and he didn 't know this, but neuroscience thirty years later actually started showing that that the same small region of the human brain insula is active both when you hold something warm and when you're say texting uh, to family and friends or thinking about your your uh, your the significant others in your life and this was not known to Bowlby but you know it was it's funny because culturally I was watching a documentary on the history channel uh, about about hell actually and they have a lot of these on the history channel and they got to uh, this is about Dante and the inferno and they got down to the ninth level which is the lowest worst worst sinners uh, uh in the ninth level lowest as, as you can go Satan is there and Uh, This is uh, for people who betrayed the trust of others, betrayed the trust of close others, like Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ, and also the person who betrayed Dante is right there, too. Uh, what is the punishment in the middle of fiery hell for betraying the trust of others, according to Dante, who came up with poetic justice mm-hmm. and contrapasso
0: and the punishment well, for I, the crime. I, 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 I got to bring you back to the cup of coffee, though. I mean, is that... Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, Dante's punishment for the, for the frozen, for the, uh, the, the, uh, being betraying the trust of others was to freeze them uh-huh. in ice for, for eternity. And so that's the other side of the, the coin. But what goes on here is that there's actually a channel between feeling physically uh... physical warmth and trusting and feeling positive towards other people uh... and that channel uh, can be activated just by studies for example by incidentally holding something physically warm will actually make you more trusting and and more Uh Uh, liking of another person, and the the opposite works for um, a cup of iced coffee instead. And all we did was we had them hold this just because our hands were full with the papers. Here, please hold this for a second. We got their papers for them, and we took it right back and said thank you. So it wasn't even part of the actual experiment, they thought. And yet it had the same effect in the study as the words warm or cold had in these, you know, classic experiments from 50 years ago.
0: So if you wanted someone to have warm feelings toward you, introducing you, you, you come into the office with a warm cup of coffee. Or tea for them. That's
3: not a bad idea. People who uh, have have just had a rejection experience, they they've had a bad uh, encounter with somebody. They prefer warm foods for lunch instead of cold cuts.
0: Maybe we knew that subconsciously all the time. That's why we always say, "Hey, you know, I'm going out for a cup of coffee. Do you want something or tea or?" I've always
3: uh, greeted people in my office with hot coffee. I'm sure. Many people do, and it's uh, always been a socially warm kind of thing, like a fireplace in the in the wintertime.
0: All right, let's go to the phones. Let's go to uh, Alex in uh, New Haven, someplace you should know about, Dr. Bard. Uh,
4: go ahead, Alex. Hello, um, I'm Alex. I'm a law student in New Haven. I was really interested in uh, concerning subconscious bias uh, with attractive people and conventionally unattractive people, but I'm curious, what you say um how your analysis applies to race um does the same subconscious bias effect work uh would you say for applicants uh concerning different race?
3: okay Uh, well absolutely uh this is this is uh, uh the major problem and uh you know like The uh, orchestras often now have blind tryouts, you know, where you don't even see the person who's performing. You just listen to their music and you don't know anything about them. You don't know if they're male or female. You don't know what race or ethnicity. Sometimes you don't even know their age. Uh, And that's a good idea because these biases can operate. And they do clearly operate, even in well-intentioned people. And this is the problem. These things get in from our culture, even for people who want to be egalitarian and non-racist and still influence. There's still a negativity associated uh, with uh, minority groups uh, in, in, in societies all over the world. The negativity then is attributed to something in front of you, like, well, uh, they don't have good letters of recommendation or they didn't play that music well. In other words, you don't realize the influence coming in from these cultural biases. And the sad thing about these cultural, another sad thing about those cultural biases is they affect the group themselves. So, for example, this is a a very scary study, actually, because it was on five-year-olds at a Harvard preschool about 10 years ago, and these are Asian-American girls and five-year-olds. Now, they either colored in uh, cartoons or coloring things for their Asian identity that emphasized that or their female identity. And if it was the Asian, they actually scored on this math test afterwards, age appropriate, significantly higher than average. But if they had colored in the ones with the two girls playing with dolls or something, their, hmm. their score was actually significantly lower than average. And that was at five years of age.
0: That's amazing. Um, all right. Do these biases come from being around other people? I mean, you're not, you're not saying these are hardwired at five years oh, of age. Oh, absolutely not. Right.
3: Absolutely not. The, the studies of, of little infants, uh, newborns, for example, do they prefer to look at people who are like them, same race and so forth? They don't. They, they don't have any experience yet, but mm-hmm. after three months, they do. So they have to learn who the caretakers are and who the people who are like them similar to them are. It doesn't come at birth.
0: So is there any way for us to to control these influences, these unconscious influences in ourselves?
3: The hopeful news here is that uh, if you really want to and you really have that motivation, you can definitely do things to control it. You can tell yourself, when I see a person of color or I see a person of a certain group, I will be fair. And you can have that. You basically can take control over that process by, by making your own sort of unconscious process that sets it up in advance, that this will be the stimulus, this will be the signal, a person who's of color, a person, a, a woman, whoever the minority group uh, is, and that will trigger this goal that you would have to be fair and treat mm-hmm. them fairly. This actually works.
0: Let's go to the phones. Uh, You can give us a call, 844-724-8255. Let's go to Cleveland. Uh, Pankaj, welcome to Science Friday. Hi.
4: um, Hi. Really interesting discussion that you guys are having today. There was actually an article that I had heard about where if you look at judges, um, their determination on guilty or innocent can be related to how much uh, they have eaten or how hungry they are. I don't know if you
0: guys have any comments on that.
3: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard about that. That was frightening. I was actually in the court system uh, in an assault case. I was a victim of an assault, and uh, I was in the court system. and And uh, it, that study came out at that time, and I think it was something like if the judge is making. Your, the verdict, uh, the sentencing of you as as the defendant, uh, right before lunch. That's not good because they're hungry, they're impatient, they're just a little crabby because they're hungry. And if they've just come back from lunch and you're the next case, actually the sentences are significantly less harsh, and uh, not as not as severe if they've just had a nice hmm. lunch. And this was tremendously upsetting because these are arbitrary, whimsical kinds of influences on that actually affect people's lives in in, yeah. in dramatic ways. Now, the judge would say, oh, no, of course not. The judge would say, no, that's, that's not part of their own theory of what influences their sentences and decisions at all. And yet uh, that, mm-hmm. that was a shocking finding. I remember that story.
0: I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. And, and you know, we live in this politically divisive world now. Are, are we unconsciously making decisions about people we meet by the, just their political leanings? You're a good person because of this. You're, you know, I don't want to date you because you voted for so and so. Well, we definitely like people who are similar
3: to us. We, we, uh, there's stories about um, if you share a birthday with somebody, you sort of have a, a feeling that you can be like them too. High school students in New Haven actually uh, had their math scores improved at the end of the school year. The grades uh, by the end of the school year were better if they'd read about somebody who won a math award who just happened to have the same birthday as they did. It was manipulated in a, a, faked, uh, a fake news, but it was pretended to be a, a story out of the newspaper. And they put that person just happening to have in a bio box that same birthday as the the student or not. If they had the same birthday, this is in October when they read this, they actually had higher math grades at the end of the school year back in, in May or June. And so this, this, I, this similarity is very powerful, that if we feel similar to some, and that the opposite of that is if you don't feel similar to somebody, then you don't really feel like, um, you know, you, you don't treat them as well as you do with the similar people. The thing about, the thing about these, uh, these political issues, though, uh, the, a good part of Before You Know It has to do with the underlying uh, reasons for political, um, political attitudes. And, there are some very topical things that are relevant. For example, uh, we actually move people's attitudes towards immigration around by whether they had just had a flu virus shot or not. Now, what in the world is that about? That's because there's a a metaphor that's being used a lot, and it's being used uh, in the past by political leaders, that immigrants are like, coming into your country, are like germs or bacteria invading your body. And it's a very powerful metaphor that speaks to our very important and and very useful... uh, physical uh, physical goal to avoid disease and to be physically safe. And so if you make that metaphor, then you really do want to get rid of, you want to build walls and you want to get rid of these germs out of your body by deporting them and so forth. What we did was we we raised this flu issue and then we had them fill out, the the people in the study fill out uh, questionnaires about their attitudes towards immigration. And then we found out afterwards had they had the flu virus shot or not. If we raise the threat and they had the flu virus shot, they were protected, their attitudes towards immigration were significantly positive, more positive than usual. But if they had not had the shot, their attitudes towards immigration were significantly more negative than usual. And that's that's a scary thing because it's saying these physical, these very reasonable, important and, and necessary physical motivations to avoid disease and to be safe are really underlying our political attitudes towards these, actually in a way, we're treating people as if they're germs. We're considering in our mind anyway, maybe without realizing it, that we're treating these uh, actual human, fellow human beings as if they oh. were bacteria or viruses.
0: And you can read more about uh, all of this in uh, John Barge's book, Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. John Barge is a professor of uh, psychology at Yale University. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Very interesting. My pleasure, Ira. Thank you. You're welcome. After the break, the new Blade Runner movie has us wondering, how do you make a replicant? And where are the ethical questions in that process? We're going to take science goes to the movies and talk about the, the new, mo- new movie, Blade Runner. There's spoilers in it. So be ready for that. We'll be, ra- we'll be back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. The
2: most spectacular science shocker ever filmed
3: science fiction.
0: Now, science fact. Ah, yes, that sound signals another edition of Science Goes to the Movies. And this week, I thought it was time to talk about Blade Runner 2049. And if you are a fan of the original, you don't need much introduction. Human-like replicants are doing humanity's dirty work on Earth. And colonies out of this world Meanwhile, a cop named Kay, a replicant cop named Kay, is trying to learn where he came from himself. In a story with flying cars, fake memories, and huge industrial farm complexes, there's a lot of science fiction to pick apart. But the biggest question I have is, how do you make a replicant? What kind of technology, whether gene editing or AI, Would we use? That's what we're going to be talking about next. Angelica Lim is assistant professor of computing sciences at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. Terry Johnson, professor of bioengineering, University of California at Berkeley. (coughs) That button means, yes, we're going to be talking about spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, cover, cover your ears, turn off the radio, listen to this podcast later. Or just accept your fate and go along with us. Let's talk about the film. Uh, Terry Johnson, all right. Uh, how did you like the film?
4: Oh, I very much enjoyed it. Because? Uh, um, I, I thought that it did a really good job of suggesting different options for the science behind it and sort of making you figure out how you felt about it.
0: Oh, that, that, that's cool. Angelica, what about, uh, what about you? Did you like it?
5: I have to say that I went in hoping that I would really like it and I was a bit disappointed.
0: Because?
5: Um, There were a lot of new ideas in science fiction that had been explored just previously in other science fiction films like um, Her that came out a couple years ago Mm -hmm. and Westworld. So nothing really came out as uh, really new for me. Um, and there was this kind of, you know, this was based off of uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep from the 1960s? So the ideas were very dated. The ideas of having an AI that uh, was kind of um, housemaids and, and serv- to servitude, uh, all of these ideas that felt a little bit dated. So I didn't really appreciate that too much.
0: Hmm. Let, me, let me ask the bioengineer here, um, Terry. Uh, like like the, blo- the original Blade Runner, the replicants, those human-like artificial beings, they are the stars of the show but but we're never quite told how they were made uh what makes you know the most sense are they biology uh like the replicants or are they like ro- more robotics like in Westworld we're never told that
4: it seems like they want to toe the line there's a uh scenes in the original that suggests that the various biological parts the eyes are made by one person uh it's sort of like a an assembly line that's all put together uh, at another point, uh, which would definitely be the hard way to construct any sort of biological human-like thing, like a replicant. Um, but it, I think that the science there is more about challenging you. Like, the, does the fact that these biological pieces are constructed separately and put together as opposed to born, uh, does that change the way you feel about the person in front of you? Angelica, what's your,
0: what are your feelings about it?
5: Uh, Well, the question there then is, from my perspective as a roboticist, is could we build things that look like replicants from a robotics perspective? You know, probably start out with uh, skeletal frames that are made of metal and then build it more organic type or, you know, today there are silicon, very human-like looking robots in Japan, for example, there are the Geminoids that look from the outside. Uh, almost dis- indistinguishable from humans as long as you don't interact with them for too long. Um, but then the question is, why is it in Blade Runner that uh, when um, one of them is cut that they bleed? Why would we go mm-hmm. to that that extent? Uh, and that's questionable for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And and could it, could it not in this day and age of uh, synthetic human genomes and getting and building things with DNA? Could could they not be more of a of a, a hybrid of both? Things? biology, and mechanics?
5: Uh, Well, I I do know that, at least coming from the human side, there are people that start to put things onto their bodies. These are called human cyborgs. Whether it's trying to put a sensor uh, on their tongue or external to their their body, and using that as another way to sense the world. For example, um, using a kind of camera to... um, to feel colors or that sort of thing. So that's starting to exist today.
4: Mm hmm. Uh, and there's the hints, oh, I was going to say, and there's the hints in the movie um, Wallace sees via these remote drone cameras uh, that seem to have a, a connection with his nervous system. So mm. it's unclear whether the replicants are completely biological um, or to what extent they're robotic or, or inorganic.
0: Uh, Angelica, you talked about how robotics is advancing, and we know about soft robotics now and things that feel mm-hmm. more like skin. Um, mm-hmm. Could we not be not moving in that direction to make them more real-looking
5: and feeling? Uh, certainly, in the hard- on the hardware sp- perspective, um, so I lived in Japan for about six years, and there was one in particular called the HRP4C. And this is a robot that could walk, it could move around, um, an android with very you know, realistic silicon skin on her face mm-hmm. and on her hands. Uh, so that exists there. I think the real difficulty these days is the AI, the software, the control, the understanding of the world, and that's where I think the, the challenge is coming up.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the replicants in the movies are supposed to be programmed to obey, Terry. If, if we see the replicants as genetically engineered... Um, how would that work? Uh,
4: I think it's pretty clear, based on what we know, that that wouldn't be a matter of any sort of genetic engineering. Um, obedience is even more complicated a concept than intelligence. Uh, the idea that uh, even a reasonably small number of genes could be manipulated in some way uh, to cause behavior as complex as obedience to a corporation, I think, is uh, beyond what people are considering in this, uh, it seems likely that that may be more corporate PR than science. Mm. Uh, the the evidence that we see of obedience is really based on a psychological test, the baseline test, which kind of took over for the Voigt-Kampf test in the original. And the voigt test is about is this a replicant or not. Um, the baseline test is about is this replicant still going to obey. Uh, Is this replicant not yet so disturbed by what it's forced to do and what's been done to it uh, that it could continue to function? And if it fails the baseline test, it's quickly retired.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about the ways in which their lifespans vary?
4: Uh, The idea of programming the lifespan in an organism is probably a little bit more uh, scientifically an option. I don't think that we know how to do it, but the hints from the first movie about looking to uh, people with advanced aging diseases um, suggest that something like that might be possible, but at the very least very far off.
0: Mm-hmm. Angelica, uh, Angelica your, your work focuses on how to bring emotion into mm-hmm. AI. How do we do that, mm-hmm. and how, how do you think it was accomplished in the film?
5: Well, there was an AI named Joy and she was especially expressive and uh, I think the tagline for her was that she knows what you need and tells you what you want to hear. This is a a kind of super empathy, isn't it? Um, Understanding what the human is feeling and thinking. And responding in kind, and so that today is is very difficult, and it's hard to do. We do have um, emotion detectors, which are able to look at your face and tell if you're smiling or frowning, and that sort of thing. Um, But to go even further and understand, so Ryan Gosling, love the actor, but if you look at his, he's not if he's not super emotionally expressive, right? Mm -hmm. So how would um an ai be able to understand that this is what he's thinking and feeling and if this happens then that would also mean that so um there's a lot of uh of um entertainment behind mm-hmm. that part of the the movie
0: we we don't know if he's a replicant or not by the <laughs> end of the movie <laughs> No sport. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what did you yeah. what did you make of Joy? You you brought up Joy as as a super yeah. advanced AI assistant for Kay.
5: Yeah, well, um, I mean, take a look at what we have today in the home. We have Alexa, the Amazon Echo, um, which is getting more and more popular. Um, these are chatbots you know we have chatbots online and even ones that are able to fool people into thinking that they're humans for at least if you interact with them for a few number of minutes if you interact with them for 20 minutes you realize that it's just um, a chatbot but this kind of um, entity that looks so much like a human and can interact so much like a human is is pretty impressive and I think there's half half of the story here Um, the expression that we see in her that's that can be done today right mm-hmm. we've seen this in movies this is no problem artists know how to do that but again the fact that she has all of this understanding of the world um, that uh, she has these memories that are backed up um, in the cloud and that builds up her whole persona and all of her personality um, and that she can even say that okay um, if if this if the police come and um, and they see all of my memories, they're going to get you, so we better erase them all and put myself on a, This is a huge spoiler, by the way. Um, put the, <laughs> put all of my memories on this stick. That's, that's amazing. I mean, what, you know, what goals have you programmed into this AI for it to do that? Yeah, well, but that's, um, that's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, but Putting memories um, on a stick
0: has been very popular in a lot of sci-fi now.
5: It has been because that gives vulnerabil- vulnerability, right? We think yeah. of these AIs as kind of superhuman, and they exist on the cloud until they're deleted. And so, as soon as she gets onto the stick, um, suddenly we feel this um, so much more um, emotional attachment to her. Anything that happens to her could, uh, you know, could lose her forever. And so that's um, that's kind of an interesting idea, right? So, yeah. on an ethics side, though, would we want to have? Um, entities that we would get so attached to, though, that uh, we might do something drastic for them. For example, in the last scene, when um, she's on the stick and she's about to get crushed, let's say that um, in order to save his love, Ryan Gosling, his character, Kay goes and and, you know, puts himself in the line of danger. Is that okay? Is that okay to have objects that we are so emotionally attached to that we would risk our lives for them? And so... You know, I'd hope that we would keep all of our stuff backed up in the cloud. But then, of course, we're thinking about privacy. Maybe we we don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's a big ethical question.
0: Yeah. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking with Angelica Lim and Terry Johnson about the new Blade Runner movie and the idea of uh, the replicants in them. Um, and Terry, one of the we, – we mentioned Westworld a little, a little bit, and I want to bring that analogy up again a little bit. Because in Westworld, there's also this, you know, underlying theme of what is real, what is human, and the Westworld robots define their humanity by their ability to think for themselves, right? You're seeing them actually thinking thoughts they were not programmed with. On the other hand, in in Blade Runner, the humanity here seems to me to be, the definition of it is whether you can reproduce like a human.
4: Yeah, it's the the idea of where do you draw the line is probably one that this society has had to uh to grapple with for a long time uh and i can imagine in the the intervening decades um when these new these new replicants come out they're being sold as much safer than the previous replicants but i can imagine that this is a conversation that the company has been having with society for a long time that maybe this is Uh, where they would like to draw the line because it's convenient for their product. Um, It's probably not, considering there are plenty of uh, people now without reproductive capacity, a great line in the sand to draw about who deserves rights or not. Mm -hmm. But in the context of the story, it might make sense.
0: It's kind of a miracle, though. I mean, to make a robot reproduce, when you think about it?
4: Uh, The idea of having these replicants that were uh, designed most likely unable to um, self-replicate, unable to reproduce, uh, and to have that design decision be carried through from the Nexus 1 to the Nexus 2 to all of these different versions, and then trying to go back in the design and recapture something Mm -hmm. uh, that was quickly turned away from decades previous, Uh, you can imagine the 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 engineering difficulty to do something that the original design that this was based on people uh, are capable of doing.
0: Yeah, uh, Angelica, it's 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 interesting um, in 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 that K starts out knowing he's a replicant. Um, if we're going down the path of a replicant as a robot, is it a good idea that he knows he's a replicant?
5: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really important. Robots should know that they're robots, and humans should also know that those that someone that an entity is a robot or not. There um a few years ago uh there were a set of rules called the UK Principles of Robotics that were published, and one of the rules includes transparency. Any robot should be able to be uh clearly identified as a robot. Again, going back to the ethical issue of we should be able to know that this is a robot that's not like a human. It, it doesn't have the same um, uh, yeah, it doesn't have the same capabilities, but mm-hmm. also the same uh, properties as a human. For instance, a robot could be working 24-7. A robot could be accessible anytime. I mean, there's. Uh, w- we shouldn't have to think that, oh, this, this robot that looks, you no, know, this human, to at least to us, um, is vulnerable. Uh, we should know that it's a robot. It can upload its memory into the cloud, and it'll be fine. So... Um, definitely it should know it's a robot, and so so should
0: we. You can make your own uh, judgment on this. Go see uh, Blade Runner 2049 and then uh, replay uh, our podcasting. You can relive our conversation all over again. I want to thank both of you, Angelica Lim, Assistant Professor of Computing Science at Simon Fraser University in uh, British Columbia, Terry Johnson, Professor of Bioengineering at the University of California at Berkeley. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thanks My you pleasure. Well, have a great weekend. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. And, oh, here, right before we go, one last thing. Check out the Orion ID meteor shower tonight. It's, uh, the Orion IDs are going to be out there. They could be uh, very bright tonight, depending where you live. So uh, it'll be tonight and tomorrow night. And check out the meteor shower. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York.